Hello, everyone. I am Chris Hyams, CEO of Indeed, and welcome to the next episode of Here to Help. At Indeed, our mission is to help people get jobs. This is what gets us out of bed in the morning and what keeps us going all day. And what powers that mission is our people. Here to Help is a look at how experience, strength, and hope inspires people to want to help others. My guest today is someone who has dedicated her life to helping others and has brought that passion and dedication to Indeed. Patisa Fatahi Weeks is the Senior Director of Global Community Impact at Indeed. Her work supports our ESG commitments to help 30 million job seekers facing barriers get hired. Patisa has also worked as a civil rights community lawyer and serves on the board of Housing Works Austin and is the board chair of Workers' Defense Project. We will explore these and many other topics in the conversation today. Patisa, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Chris. Well, let's start where we always start these conversations. How are you doing today? Um, I'm doing well. I I just came off of celebrating Nowruz with my family, which is the Persian New Year, um, last week, where I got to be with my partner, our two kids, my parents, my mother-in-law. So it's hard not to feel grateful, um, especially given how conscious I am, how many people aren't getting to have that kind of experience right now. So I think mostly feeling full of gratitude. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Let's start with your role. Um, How do we define community impact here at Indeed and how do you help people get jobs? Right, so community impact is within our social impact team within the ESG organization. Um, Of course, we think about helping all people get jobs, um, breaking down bias and barriers in the hiring process. The part that is unique about community impact is that we think very much about the communities where Indeed has its biggest footprints. And then we think about who are the folks who are most marginalized in those communities, may face the most economic insecurity, um, face the most barriers. And how do we serve them? How do we celebrate the strengths of those communities, the assets that they bring to our cities and our metropolitan areas? But also, how do we extend the best of what we have to make sure they're included, being lifted up, and a part of the platform and the solutions that we think about every day. We have a lot of ground to cover and a lot of um, topics that you care very deeply about and I care uh, deeply about. But but before we get into that, um, one of our earlier conversations when when we were first meeting was me asking you how you pronounce your name. And we've, we've had uh, a number of discussions about this and, and we've covered this actually on, on here to help before, but um, people who have names that are um, very commonly pronounced differently uh, by American speakers, um, oftentimes 
people just sort of roll with that as, um, in fact, probably most of the time they do. Um, but I have sort of made it a practice of asking, and I know that in the, in the handful of times I've done that here in Indeed, it creates some complication because I introduce you as Parisa, everyone else calls you Parisa. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that experience is, is like? And we're going to get into your your immigrant experience, but just in, in, a, in a workplace, in, in a personal setting, um, your name can be said many different ways and how you've thought about that and, and what that means. Yeah. I mean, first I want to say that I love the intentionality and desire to sort of get it right that um, I've gotten from you and lots of other folks at Indeed ever since I came here. Um, in I think, in, yeah, in Farsi, like you said, it's Padisa. And I think somewhere around kindergarten, I learned how to say my name or pronounce it in the way that was going to make it easiest for me to make friends. And that was Parissa. It meant that I would have to repeat it fewer times. It meant that I it didn't catch as much attention. Um, I wouldn't have to like help the teacher three times work on it in front of the whole class. So um, I think somewhere in kindergarten, it just stopped Parissa and it sort of compartmentalized my life where there was home and Iranian social gatherings and then school and work. And those were the two tracks. And honestly, at least I'm not super conscious of it that I'm suppressing a part of my identity by saying Parissa. It's ha It's been a part of my life for so long and I really am a hyphenated I feel hyphenated in my identity and in my culture and that I'm Iranian and I'm American. So it's kind of uh, felt natural to me um, to do that. Although I, I do wonder what if, what if there were more Chris's around when I was younger, maybe that would have changed the trajectory. But as is now, I think I, my nature is to put people at ease, to make people feel comfortable and to, and when I, feel like I'm setting them up for something that's difficult to say, um, it, it, it's, it's, it makes me want to run the other direction. So, um, so, so it's a mixed bag, but it's sort of embracing the messiness of it has also been pretty cool over the last few months here. Yeah. And, and I'm also conscious of the fact that I'm not pronouncing it exactly right. Like even when I hear you say it, and so I'm, I'm sort of making the effort, but also not trying to tell anyone else, anyone else that they need to, do the same, but um, anyway, thank you for 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 sharing that and for uh, allowing me to at least give it a shot. Uh, but let's so well, so let's talk about the immigrant experience. So you were you were born in in, in Iran. You you came here when with your family when you were young. Um, what how I mean, it's it seems like a, a sort of too obvious question, but but how did that shape your view of the world, being from one place and growing up somewhere else, and and how you think about the world today? Sure. Yeah. So uh, my parents um, moved here with my brother and me when when I was an infant. My dad was going to be getting his uh, PhD at the University of Texas at Austin. We thought we would only be here for two years to do his coursework. Um, but there was a political revolution in Iran and we just um, it, it became unsafe for us to go back or unwise. Um, and so my parents made that 
choice that so many immigrant parents do, which is to throw themselves into a situation that felt very uncomfortable um, and in a situation in which they were going to have to start over in many ways and leave behind all that they had built uh, to stay here on the chance that it would help my brother and me get uh, get lots more opportunities than we would have if we had gone back. And so uh, I we grew up in actually graduate student housing, and we rode the, the the city and the university buses. And my mom worked at the PCL, which is the big library on camp at, at, on the UT campus. And there was something very um, noticeable to me from very early on as a child. As soon as I was capable of speaking full sentences. Um, I could speak English without an accent. And so it was not long before my brother and I were the ones who would handle what you might think of as like business phone calls for the family uh, because it became, well, one, it was easier uh, than my parents sort of English being their distant second language, sort of hacking their way through a, a conversation. But secondly, people just treated us differently. And so that's something that as a child at such a such an early age to understand in-group, out-group dynamics and to know that language was one of those signals of power. So as a six-year-old, I like had this like access to power that even my mom didn't by putting me on the phone to be able to speak. Um English without an accent, I think it just, it very much made me conscious of power, who gets it and who doesn't, and how do I make sure that I have it when I need it to protect my family or the people I love. Um, and frankly, it was a sort of 20-year journey before I became a citizen in the United States, and we had lots of opportunities to, I had lots of opportunities along the way to learn what a privilege it is to hold United States citizenship. Um, some scary times and some, uh, yeah, just times when I became crystal clear on the fact that who you are as a human and the value you bring to your neighbors, to your family, to your school, to your workplace has very little to do with your citizenship status. Um, and so if only we could unlock all of that feeling of belonging for everyone, I think we would have a very, very different understanding of who is part of our community and how much everyone has to contribute. Mm. Very beautiful. Thank you. Um, so uh, uh, you, you told the story before, and I'd love I'd love to have you uh, tell it here about your time as a uh, undergraduate at UT um, when you ended up running for uh, student body uh, president. How how did that come about, and and what did that what did that experience mean to you? First of all, this is ancient history, and it's really funny that I still this is like. <laughs> I'm like an old has-been that that's like one of my highlights from long ago. But let's let's put that aside. It is a good story. Um, it's a cool story because remember that feeling of outsiderness 
Um, but I would, I, I grew up in many ways on the UT campus. I helped my mom stamp the due dates in the library books. When I was off for the summer, I'd go to work with her at the PCL. And I'm not sure they ever, my parents ever felt like they fully belonged. Um, so when I was a student at UT years later, um, I was sort of, you know, finding my own way, very different mindset than what my parents had experienced the generation prior. And I was involved in all the, the clubs that make you feel like, you know, you belong and that make you feel better about not studying for that test or reading that big long article or book you're supposed to be reading. So I was like in all the things and, uh, but student government was not one of them. In my mind, although UT is big and w wonderful in so many ways, there was like a majority culture in my mind that did not look like me. And in my mind, student government was kind of for those people that kind of fit a certain profile. Um, and again, I was not it. And But I was involved. And so uh, what happened was it was about the time when you have to decide as a student, as a sort of for campaign purposes, if you're going to file to run. And two uh, men uh, who were my peers, they were, they happened to be white men. Not, they were not running together, but two separate people asked me if I would run as their vice presidential candidate, because you do better in the student government elections if you run as what, what we call a ticket. So you can kind of like build up support. It had never occurred to me to run for student government president until then. And I thought, well, if two different people are asking me to be their vice presidential candidates and they're both men. And I honestly, with all due respect, because they're both good people, I felt like I could do a better job than than those two particular people. I decided that I would what the heck? I would I would actually turn it around and I would be the presidential candidate and I asked one of them to be the vice presidential candidate and and off we went and the rest is history. But yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's a, you know, for us for someone at that age to run to represent, you know, like a 50,000 student body. Yeah. 50,000, one of the biggest in the country it was, it was a unique experience and one I will never, ever forget. And I'm so thankful for it. So you stuck around at UT and then ended up going to, uh, UT law school. Um, what, what inspired you to want to study law? So I, I actually, right after undergrad, I moved to Spain for a minute and then I moved to Washington DC and worked. Um, I did a little time on Capitol Hill and then for the federal government, I worked for the EPA um, and I had classic immigrant parents that were like, lawyer or doctor, lawyer or doctor, what's it going to be? And I was like, putting it off, putting it off. And, um, I wanted to do public policy school. So I was going to go to the LBJ school back in Austin. And I went ahead and also applied to law school and I deferred it for a year thinking maybe I can convince my parents I really don't need to go to law school. Um, but I, I, I did my first year at LBJ and then I did in fact start law school. And the reason though, that I knew it wasn't just saying yes to what my dad wanted me to do. It was actually a keen awareness of power again. And I knew that having a law degree would give me 
keys to a certain kind of power that especially as an immigrant watching our our own family navigate the immigration system we're coming now off of September 11th 2001 when there were um random investigations questionings interrogations of people who may be from countries that were deemed dangerous um there was so much scrutiny and fear that I knew that getting a law degree, even if I wasn't certain I was going to be a lawyer, a practicing lawyer, that it would give me access to a certain kind of protection if I ever needed to help my family um, and to navigate that same power for other people like us that needed, that may need a little extra help um, because uh, of other vulnerabilities. So that's why I went to law school. I'm really glad that I did. Um, even though obviously I'm not a practicing attorney today, I, I'm, I'm so glad that I did. And I got to learn after law school from a federal judge and that clerkship taught me so much and gives me a great deal of respect for lawyers. So while you were at UT law school, you had, um, uh, a, a unique opportunity to introduce uh, then young Senator Barack Obama to a crowd of 21,000 people in Texas for a rally in 2007. Um, what was that experience like? Yeah, that was an unexpected, another unexpected turn of events. I um, I was part of a group of Austinites, grad students, and even some undergrads that were sort of planning to help organize what was going to be a very small rally for then Senator Obama. He was a long shot candidate at the time, the primary between he and Senator Clinton hadn't happened yet. And so he, he was definitely the, the nobody had heard of him candidate. And so we were helping to organize. We were checking out if for those of you who know the university campus, Gregory Jim was going to be the venue originally for the rally. Um, but things started to get bigger and we thought, I'm, I'm trying to remember what the breaking point was. Our friends Ian and Amy and others could say better what the breaking point was, but at some point it switched and we were going to do it on auditorium shores outside. And I was just helping organize, but the two or three days before the rally, I actually had a bicycle accident and I had gotten a concussion and had internal bleeding and had like a huge black eye. And while I was in the actually waiting room at the hospital is when I got the call from the big organizers in charge. Like, we'd like you to be the one to introduce him at the rally um, in, in 48 hours. Will you do it? And I couldn't decide whether or not to tell them that I had a huge black eye, but I obviously wanted to take the opportunity. Um, so I didn't tell them right away and I just said yes, but I, I eventually said I would, I let them know I had a black eye and they, and I said, can I wear sunglasses? And they said, okay, well, we get there that day and it is now you may remember because you were there, but it's drizzling <laughs> rain. There's nobody that needs to wear sunglasses, but I wore them anyway because I was hiding a big black eye. Um, but I think the reason they wanted me to do it was some of the issues I was working on at that very moment were very emblematic of the things that uh, then Senator Obama cared about. I was I had 
helped um, volunteer extensively with folks who had been evacuated during Katrina. And so I got to speak about that experience. And I had represented as a student attorney um, immigrants who had been detained in Hutto Detention Center um, north of Austin and and helped seek asylum and uh, temporary release uh, for, for some immigrant detainees. So th- I got to speak a little bit about that as well as help pump the crowd up. And it was an amazing experience. And he, I still, my parents think I like can pick up the phone and call President Obama. They think I know him closely, but I do not. <laughs> If you like this interview and want to hear more, hit subscribe. Catch up on any Here to Help episodes you might have missed, like my conversation with Emily Chang, and get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Patisa Fatahi Weeks after this break. So as as you outlined earlier, you, your early career was was dedicated to um, working with and protecting marginalized communities um, in areas of climate justice, housing, access to transit, work, and then at some point you made a decision to leave the uh, nonprofit sector and to join one of the largest corporations in the world, Google. Um, and we've talked about this before. Can you can you talk about the difference of doing the kind of work that you do? And obviously, you don't work for Google anymore. You're at, at Indeed, but you're still working um, for a private corporation doing the kind of work that you've always been doing. So what is that the transition is like? And, and what is the difference between doing this work in the, in the nonprofit sector versus uh, as part of a corporation? Yeah, um, I think I, un- well, I underestimated how long the transition would take for me to feel very comfortable um, going from a nonprofit sort of civil rights law firm working on those issues to um, to Google, who I- actually my work had been in the Bay Area and a lot of the issues I was working on, like affordable housing and displacement were directly being negatively impacted by large uh, tech companies like Google. And so I never would have imagined in a million years that I would then turn around and go work for Google. Um, but I moved back to Austin and life happens. And I, I just, I had gotten this opportunity. And in my head, there were two ways it could go. One, I might just go in and learn more about how Google works so that I would be a more effective advocate on the outside, holding companies like that accountable. Or I would go in and actually be able to make enough of an incremental difference that it would actually be quite similar to what you do when you're pushing from the outside and you get some incremental change. So those were the two scenarios in my mind. Um, and it was some mix of both, but it, it really it took me a lot longer to except for myself that I had crossed over. Um, and, and I think, you know, I was really hard on myself to be quite honest, um, for making that transition in a way that I, I can finally say I've graduated from that feeling. Um, but, but it took me, it took me a long time, but what it, does, what I can see in hindsight is that it, it, I have always had to play a bridge role in so many of the 
things I've done in life, just like for my parents, I was a little bit of a bridge to the utility company on the phone or bridging cultures or always feeling a little like the in-between or what some people think of as like that interloper space. And in, in coming to the corporate sector, I think I just, there's a little bit of a superpower that I've decided to to build, which is like, how do you bridge? How do you be that ambassador to those two worlds and do both of them justice and bring bring that bring out the best of them? Yeah. So we we were talking about this a little last week, and um, it was really interesting for me. A turning point a handful of years back was talking to someone who was a, a climate researcher and activist who ended up taking a job at McDonald's. And faced actually a lot of criticism from other people that they worked with in the sustainability sector. And and their perspective was that if they could move the needle by even a half a percent at McDonald's, that they could have a a much bigger real practical impact on uh on the world. But sometimes I think it does maybe feel like you're you're an activist from the inside um as well. And well, so being part of the technology sector now, as you have for a while, um, there has been certainly a pretty significant shift in public perception over the last handful of years. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about the responsibility that tech companies have um, when it comes to the impact on the communities they serve? Yeah, I think I to no one's surprise, I think the responsibility is huge. I think it's real and I think it's more than about PR. And so um the very first example that comes to mind actually is back when I was first making this crossover when I was in the advocacy sector in the Bay Area, there was this phenomenon happening happening where for the first time a lot of tech companies were creating their own bus lines to run from the city of San Francisco to the South Bay, where a lot of the headquarters for companies like Yahoo and Google were. And the Google buses would actually literally pull over and get in the way of the city buses where, so you had these tech workers who had the luxury of getting their own bus to sit on this Wi-Fi air-conditioned ride for an hour south where that was displacing the ability of people who that at the time we called transit reliance. So these are people who they absolutely need to ride the city bus to get to their jobs. And in many cases, they need to switch bus lines three times to get to their jobs. And they're in a job that if you're 30 minutes late, you may very well lose your job. And so here was sort of like a Google bus disrupting that flow for their own interests. And I say all this to say there was sort of a, I think a really legitimate reason for some of the backlash is just like thoughtlessness about how does, how do my actions as a company affect the community of which we are a part for my neighbors, for the people who work at my kid's school, whatever it may be. And, um, so I think the the responsibility is huge. To to Google's credit, there was some work. I actually was very critical of 
things like that in my interview. And to their credit, they still hired me <laughs> and they, they, they took on partnerships that actually led to like free youth transit passes. They corrected those actions of getting in the way of the city buses and the muni lines. Um, but all that to say that the responsibility is huge. I think it's real. I think it's okay if it's messy, but I think it's got to be from a place of wanting to follow the lead of the people who are directly being, you know, are experiencing the hardship or being impacted uh, rather than just making sure you get the glossy headline. Let's uh, talk a little bit about Indeed and the work that you do here. Um, back in February, we announced a $10 million investment to launch a new program called Essentials to Work, um, which is focused on helping struggling job seekers in the U.S. to get access to the things that they need, technology, transportation, and, uh, and importantly, criminal record clearing services. Can you talk a little bit about Essentials to Work and, and what it is that you hope to achieve? Sure. Um, you know, ever since I started talking to Indeed about coming to work here, I've been really impressed by the commitment to making sure we are supporting job seekers who face barriers, forming partnerships like um, the one that you all ha have long worked on with Goodwill, um, especially in that stage where, where job seekers are trying to apply for a job or create a resume or um, do the inner get through the interview process and that has always stuck with me that that has been really an authentic part of indeed's commitment but what struck me too is that when you wanted to go deeper to reach even more job seekers to even begin to help with the job seeking process you 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 quickly realize that there are some people who are fighting at a much earlier stage in the process than even that indeed apply button, right? And so we've got lots of folks who they wanted to take part in the trainings we were giving through Goodwill. They didn't have a computer. They didn't have an internet connection and it was COVID. So they couldn't come in person or if they did want to come in person, there wasn't reliable transportation to get there. Um, so those that was sort of the inspiration for why why did we need to invest in maybe one ripple or one degree out from the job seeking process. And then, of course, with record clearing services, we know that that the number of people impacted by our uh, our criminal legal system and the rates of incarceration, uh, one in three Americans has a criminal record. And although we have made progress on ensuring folks have a fair chance at being hired, there's still a long, long, long way to go. And so I was really excited that we had this opportunity to invest in some of the nonprofit organizations, but also explore some tech-based partnerships that might enable us to connect job seekers to record clearing services so that they had an even better shot when they were looking for for a job. And this this program has already really I would say lit a fire under some partnerships that we had been thinking about for a long time, but the minute we said we've got some computer devices and mobile hotspots some partners that we've been thinking about working with, they said we need 100 of those devices right now and then 
We can learn from the job seekers who are trying to use Indeed for the first time so that in the long run, the newer job seekers that are now getting to use our platform are going to have a very different experience that we should learn from so we can improve our, our product and our platform so that in 10 years, we're serving many, many, many more job seekers facing barriers. So this program um, is just launched. This is the, the first phase of what we hope is um, will grow into something much bigger. Can you talk a little bit about what the long-term vision for Essentials for Work is? You know, I think if it goes well, I think it's it's something different than us just philanthropically, you know, giving out some devices and some lift ride shares or even some legal services. It's actually about us learning so that one day we would know better, will it, does it serve job seekers and frankly, our clients to create part, make indeed more robust in a 360 degree way for job seekers when they come on to our platform could we help them see what their background check might look like before they apply and before they have to wait and cross their fingers that their background check comes back correctly for the employer they're applying with? Could we help offer that service? If it turns out they do have a criminal record that needs to be cleared, could we help refer them to a solution that may be quick, in some cases may not be, but we can help direct folks? Could we if you if you can't do an online interview through our in, um, hiring platform, could we connect you to a Lyft ride right on our platform to get to your interview or, frankly, your first few weeks of, of the job? Because really, we hope you're using <laughs> our hiring platform. Um, so the vision there is what if our, our platform became an even more useful hub than it already is? In your role... You know, we're thinking and acting locally, but also um, very much globally. Um, one of the things that you've spent um, quite a bit of time on recently is with the with the crisis in Ukraine right now, helping coordinate Indeed's support for Ukrainian refugees um, who, as they're resettling, one of the first they need housing um, and they need work, and um, so you have been really helping kind of coordinate across a, a variety of different teams and locations how we're how we're approaching that. Can you talk a little bit about what you've been trying to do in that experience? Yes, and coordinate is a great word because I there are people in every office of Indeed's working really hard on this. Um, we have a working group called Program Sunflower um, with support from from OSO, but really a lot of folks are working really hard on this. So I want to make sure it's clear that I'm simply trying to, you know, be a connection point across that hard work. Um, but just as you said, I think there's a lot of work to be done. And what we found in those first few days of, of the invasion and the aftermath of it Obviously, the senior leadership team made some very big decisions around what kind of uh, message of solidarity to post uh, for people all over the world to see um, navigating very complicated san sanctions that ultimately led to the taking down of the, the Russian Indeed site. Um, but, but in the days that have followed, we have been actively 
talking with humanitarian organizations and even government officials that are seeking to to serve refugees impacted. And obviously the biggest ask is just financial. Like they know what to do in many cases. They just need the money to make sure um, they're able to provide the support. But in the in the right in the medium term after that, as you said, as we enter that resettlement phase, we do have a critical role to play in helping people connect to employment. So whether it's ensuring that the Ukrainian language is um, available on sites beyond, you know, in Poland and beyond, quite frankly, throughout the EU, because we'll have upwards of 2 million refugees who will have work authorization across the EU and then also um, temporary protected status in the United States have work authorization in Canada. So there's a huge role we can play to make sure we're not only helping job seekers, but we're helping employers navigate this legal landscape that's quickly shifting and incentivize people to to hire refugees. Um, one, one note I want to make in all of this work, which will continue, is that our intention here is we had already begun actually some Digger, deeper um, investment in support support of refugees affected by the war in Afghanistan and the evacuation, even before the Ukraine situation. And now, with this with this invasion and the crisis, we see that you know supporting refugees is really a long game, and it's something indeed wants to build as one of its core capacities. Um, because employment is such a critical part of resettlement. And so we want to not only raise the standard of what we can do for Ukrainian refugees, but then really ensure that we are making all of those services available for people who are being displaced by conflicts all over the world. Um, and and that's not going to be easy because there are people being impacted every day. Um, but we think it's important. You have a lot of different things that you're doing here at Indeed, and um, and you have a family, and you still also find time to serve on a number of boards, uh, including, as mentioned before, Housing Works Austin and the Workers' Defense Project. Can you talk about um, what it means to continue to be doing that work while you're also doing all of these other things? Sure. Um, yeah, I think serving on the boards of those organizations is a little bit of just the extension of the work that um, I used to do before I worked in the private sector. And so, it, again, being that bridge has been such an important part of how I see myself as adding value and being useful. And I think about it's it's actually quite self-interested. Um, I mean, when I think about affordable housing, I think about the affordable housing that my family benefited from when we first moved to the United States that allowed us to live right in the center of town and to access things like buses and libraries and um, other services. That 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 made all the difference for a family that was just learning to navigate a new country, a new language. If we had been unable to live in the thick of such an opportunity rich area i i'm not quite sure i'm sure we would have been okay but i don't think we would have been um doing as well as we are today and so housing works austin is is 
driven to really making sure there's all kinds of housing for all kinds of people in all parts of town to give everyone the options that sometimes it feels like only the most affluent people have. And with Workers Defense Project, you know, that's an organization that that focuses on immigrant workers' rights, especially in the construction industry, where um, in a place like Texas, uh, if you're undocumented or even if you're documented, if you are uh, you're not always as protected as you should be when it comes to very hazardous work sites, very hot weather, rest breaks aren't always enforced. And so um, I think again about my parents and the the power dynamic that worked against them when they moved to the United States because English wasn't their first language and because their work, you know, authorizations and their visas and all of that were at times more tenuous than we would like. And they weren't treated the way they should have been. Um, They just weren't. I mean, I have many, many, many visceral memories of that. And so organizations like that, I mean, they're really just me being self-interested and wanting to make sure I'm protecting other families that um, are like my own and ones that are coming to Austin and that I want to make sure they have a good shot at success. And I really like the people that I get to work with through them. And so it fills my cup and it it doesn't feel like it's taking away from my work. Well, so that's a that's a good transition then to, you know, doing this kind of work and having uh, a number of people who are very close to me who have been doing a variety of advocacy work for a very, very long time. Uh, it's extraordinarily draining work uh, and it's difficult and and progress is slow if even, you know, progress in some cases. Um, how do you keep your cup filled and, and keep your energy and keep suiting up and showing up every day? I, I have not always been good at it. Um, in fact, in 2020, um, I kind of crashed and burned and I had to take three months of leave. And I got to take, I should say, three months of leave um, to recenter, be with my children whose schools were closed, um, but also to take care of my health because I I burned out in every way possible. And it was only from sort of re-emerging because I had the privilege of that leave that I was able to understand sort of what happens when you don't put up some boundaries and you don't ensure that your cup is being filled. Um, I think I just so threw myself into my work, but then also the kids at home and everything just the bottom emptied out. And so I just, I want to say it's not easy. It's, and if you've burned out or you feel like you're about to listen to your body because um, my body made it so that I couldn't ignore it. And I wish I had caught it a little bit earlier. Um, But again, having some time to step away and come back, I had sort of refilled my cup. And now I'm just much more protective of situations and dynamics that are actually the net net is draining rather than filling. And if that's starting to happen, I, I want to, I, I probably don't want to stick around. Well, as we, um, wind up our time here, I could keep talking, uh, for a very long time. Uh, but, um, I just want to come back to, you know, the word community, which is um, where you have sort of immersed yourself and dedicated so much of your your life to. And 
in the context of the last couple of years through the pandemic, we've had a an opportunity, I guess, to to rethink how how we are all connected. Um, and uh, as a we had a, a discussion earlier um, in in here to help just a few weeks back with uh, Dr. Shayla White Ramsey, one of the things that she said is, you know, people keep talking about we're all in the same boat. And she's like, well, we're all in the same ocean. We're not necessarily all in the same boat. And so we, while we've had this opportunity to uh, to think about that and to to see what that interconnection looks like, what is there anything um, about the the word or the, the idea of community that has evolved for you throughout this experience? No, I think in many ways it brought home what I always thought and it made it reminded me that I do know something <laughs> that I don't that not everything is learned from the outside that some things you you just know. And for me, um I mentioned to you a lot about how my parents grew up, like uh, raised us in this setting of like th this group housing, graduate student housing, a lot of other immigrants, a lot of shared resources and knowledge. And which bus line did you take to go get your, you know, this taken care of or this doctor's appointment? Can you watch my kid? Like a lot of just like community living is how we grew up and there was nothing fancy about it, but something about bringing it together made it so much stronger than it would have been had people had to just fend for themselves. And I think something about the pandemic has only confirmed and validated that like, if we can, I mean, we had to do the pod, yeah, we were lucky enough to have a pod that we could work with, with our children. And, and it, it felt so reminiscent of that idea of like we were just so much stronger if we had some people we could trust to ask the stupid questions to um, get the inside knowledge just make things more accessible um the the pandemic only i guess affirmed my intuition about community all along well um thank you so much for sharing all of that and um for for joining me today uh, but really, um, thank you so much for everything that you do for for Indeed and and for the world. And it was really just such a pleasure to get to to hear your experiences and your thoughts and share it with everyone else here today. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for listening to Here to Help. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and download the podcast to stay up to date with the latest episodes. Until next time.